0: Hey, everybody. This is Diana from 451. You're about to listen to my conversation with Divya Menon. Stay tuned for valuable insights about social and emotional learning and quite a few book recommendations. Thanks so much for being here and thank you so much for supporting our project. I know it's really an incipient phase and I couldn't even give you an example of what we're doing. But um, since you are part of the Smart EdTech community, I thought, Hmm, okay, maybe she'll feel for us. So thank you so much for being here.
1: Of course, I'm excited to be here as well. Would you like to introduce yourself to the audience? Um, yeah, sure. Uh, so I'm Divya Menon. I work uh, as a learning designer with uh, WHO Academy. I joined them just two months ago. Um, and um, at the Academy, I, um, I manage five programs. Um, so they are mostly for healthcare professionals across the globe. And there are different topics that we cover But prior to joining WHO Academy, I was working with uh, UNESCO for the past year and a half. Um, To be specific, I was working with uh, an Education One Category Research Institute under UNESCO, which is based in New Delhi, um, called NGIEP. And um, their focus area is on social and emotional learning for children and youth. So I was um, working for the youth team. I was, again, a learning designer there. I was responsible for building programs on um, that focus on social and emotional learning for youth. Um, and before that, I have experience working as an instructional designer and learning designer uh, designer for clients in the U.S. Um, and some clients in India as well. Um, before I joined Kodazur uh, to pursue my MSc in Smart ed Tech, I have um, I completed my graduation and post graduation in English literature. So that's my background. And then from there, I made the shift into um, So I started my career as a cabin crew with a domestic airline in India. I did that for close to two years and realized that uh, while traveling was very exciting, meeting passengers was fun, but my heart was not set in it. Um, And that's how then I shifted to behavioral training. I was a behavioral trainer for seven or eight years before I made the jump into instructional designing. So that's about me.
0: Wow, that's great. I mean, would you say that behavior training was also a good background for you to become a um, social and emotional learning expert?
1: I think so. I think every uh, bit of work that I've done in the past has somehow helped me um, not just become the person I am today, but it also helps me with the job that I've uh, handled in all these years. So when I was working as a behavioral trainer, I was not just responsible for facilitating a session. I was also responsible for producing my own content. And trying to find ways on how you connect with your learners. I think that aspect is very important, whether you're working as a facilitator or instructional designer or learning designer. It's always about putting your learners first, empathizing with them and trying to understand what is it that they would want out of a program and uh, using that um, you know, assessment of a learner's behavior to bring that into your program. So, yeah, definitely helps.
0: I think social and emotional learning are really overlooked in most educational systems. And that's why when you mentioned it last year and during the alumni session, I was very intrigued because I I admit I didn't know much about it. And then I looked a bit more into it and I realized that hmm, we don't really do that in schools and this would be actually relevant, but not just for children. Also, I think towards a corporate level, is there anything Mm -hmm. being done there? Because I think that, and maybe I'm wrong here. If you didn't have the chance to learn this during, you know, childhood and during your school years, maybe it's not too late to uh, start developing these skills when you're already a working professional.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I think we um, we're getting there now, thanks to COVID. That's one of the a few of the benefits that COVID has brought about. It's, you know, people are talking about mental health. People are talking about emotional resilience like never before. Um, I remember during my childhood and even when um, I was in my early 20s, um, social and emotional skills, they were not really seen as skills. They were seen as values that you learn from your parents, from your culture, from your school. And you're just supposed to invite that based on something that someone tells you. It was not seen as a formal skill that you can develop. And I think that's where our mind, um, you know, uh, the approach that we have towards SEL needs to change right now. Uh, at least now, because it is a skill that can be developed. These are not just values. And when you talk about a skill, it can be developed at any age. Uh, You don't just develop it as a child and then continue to practice it. It can be developed at any age. What you need is the right intervention, um, the right kind of atmosphere for you to practice those skills, and of course, willpower. Because I think one of the toughest muscles for us to develop is the brain. We get used to a certain set of ways of behaving, and our attitudes depend on whats what we are seeing in our environment and how people behave with us, so we are always thinking we are responding to a situation right but when we start thinking of it the other way that okay, I cannot control my environment, I cannot change or modify the behaviors of the people around me. what I do have control over is my own behavior and my own attitude and how do I change that? I need to practice just like I would practice in a gym to build certain um, you know the, the body muscles to tone my body. I can also tone my brain to behave in a particular way to to think you know and respond to situations in a particular way by changing by, by practicing certain you know techniques. and that is what SEL is all about. It's fantastic. Uh, but I
0: also imagine that it might be difficult to implement because the way I understand it it's also a bit difficult to measure the outcomes of a training like this. So I would like to ask you what are the biggest challenging of um, designing and uh, developing? A program in sel
1: so um what i've seen is when you talk about sel first and foremost most people don't give it the importance that it needs they say uh, we don't have time for this if you tell me how this is going to make me perform better academically And if you can, you know, uh, assign a certain percentage, okay? if you are adept at SEL, then your scores are going to improve by this percentage. If there's a guarantee to that, people will be more inclined, more motivated to practice it. Or if you tell somebody, if you have these specific SEL skills, this is the kind of career progression that you can expect. This is where you can expect to, to reach. If there's a guarantee that comes with it, people would be more inclined, which is where you're seeing that in a lot of the schools and educational institutions, they don't want this to be a particular subject. They want it to be an add-on, if so, right? They don't want to give it the focus because they don't feel the value of of adding something like that. Though that trend is changing now, but this is the general approach you see in a lot of the atmosphere around us. Um, So that's the first challenge, making people accept that just like any STEM subject or even arts or any subjects that we, we teach in schools and in colleges and what we train our employees on in corporates, let's also give this the attention that it needs, that social and emotional skills, it is equally important. The second thing, exactly like what you said, if you you look at the research that is being conducted on SEL, majority of the institutes and organizations, they use uh, questionnaires. So they will assign a questionnaire before somebody goes through a training, and then they'll assign a questionnaire after the training, and they use that to measure if there's been a change or not. But the point there is most of the people, when they go through um, a survey before a training, they've already gone through what are the questions that you're going to ask them. And then when they complete the uh, training and then they attempt the survey again, 90% of the time they know what to respond to. They might believe that they have actually changed, but how do you measure that uh, change in behavior? That's very difficult to measure. So I think some of the um, new approaches that are being tried, um, you know, that that I'm seeing around me is performance-based tasks. So instead of providing questionnaires, you assign certain tasks and then you evaluate whether there's a change in how well they're able to perform that task. So, for example, I think um, we did that at MGIP where uh, um, I helped develop this course on social and emotional learning for youth. It is based on this uh, training program that is um, developed by Life University. It's called Compassionate Integrity Training, so uh, or CIT, as we like to call it. So CIT focuses on 10 skills, which include compassion towards self, compassion towards others, uh, forgiveness and gratitude, uh, empathy, um, <clears throat> and um, being becoming aware of your body and mind and learning uh, certain techniques to calm your body and mind so these are just some of the skills that they cover among those 10. now at CIT so one example was how do you measure if someone has developed compassion through this program or not Uh, one of the things that we tried is we give someone certain scenarios before they complete the module on compassion and we'll give different scenarios where there are no right or wrong answers per se but they will say, okay, if this is the situation that you're presenting in front of me, you're talking to me about a particular character, how much empathy do I feel for that person? So it can range from zero empathy to maximum empathy. There would be five levels that you give them. And they they pick the level of empathy that they experience. And upon completing the training, you give them similar scenarios and you ask them again, now how much empathy do you feel for this person? How much compassion do you feel for this person? And based on the the selection that they make then you get to evaluate did they actually was there actually a change in the mindset in how they approach those characters And we're talking about gray characters not black and white characters so um, what happens is the moment we see somebody we are always judging them based on our own experiences and what we are seeing in that moment but there could be a lot of history to that person we which we don't get to see a lot of the times and empathy and compassion are about understanding that there is a lot of history behind this person too, just like us, to be able to remember that this is also a human being like us. They also have the same fears, aspirations like us. And there's no way for us to know that 100% unless that person has an opportunity to tell us. So keeping that in mind before we decide how we want to respond to that person. Very interesting that you mentioned performance-based tasks
0: as well because I saw this trend also in recruiting. There are... um, A lot of companies that pop up now that do external recruiting for uh, other companies that will assess um, new employees or potential employees based on performance-based tasks to see if they're actually a good cultural fit, right? Because nowadays... We realize more and more how much cultural fit is important for a company, not just, you know, having certain skills in terms of, you know, what we call nowadays hard skills. And I think that's very interesting that um, you mentioned this in um, assessing SEL programs. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think I had attended an interview with an organization before joining WHO. And the interview process was very fairly easy. They were just trying to evaluate uh, my hard skills or technical skills, as as you call them. Uh, but when it came to, uh, to see whether I was a good fit for that p- particular role, they actually sent me a questionnaire, which assesses my personality. And I was thinking, how uh, accurate is that assessment going to be? Because for someone like me, I automatically know what is the answer that's expected. So the question always arises, how honest am I being when I'm answering those questions but instead of that if you give me scenarios and you ask me how i'm going to respond to this those scenarios my response might be more accurate and you might get a better picture of what kind of person i am and whether i'm a better fit for that role or not yeah and i
0: think it goes both ways because in the end uh- a lot of times people leave companies or, you know, business relationships are being broken because of lack of a good co- cultural fit. So I'm really happy that things are moving towards that. And I'm, I'm very interested to see which other developments might, might be uh, relevant there. And, uh, I do talk a lot about corporate because right now I am in corporate. Um, and, uh, when you mentioned resistance towards programs like this, uh, I can't help but think about the resistance towards departments like learning and development because it's the same. You cannot really, sure, you, you can offer trainings and courses uh, on specific skills and you can then assess that. But at the end of the day, when it comes to soft skills, which you also need in in a uh, in corporate environment, it's very hard to assess that right away. And I think that uh, in this case, it's similar with SEL that you do really need to go for the long run here it's not a it's not a quick win thing where you uh train somebody and at the end they become more compassionate and you can see that directly but I think you really need to go for the long run when I was looking into SEL actually after your presentation um I saw that there are a lot of studies about you know children that developed these skills during childhood or during school years and the correlation between their life after 10 years after 15 years so uh I think like this is an important aspect to, to realize that it's really not about the next six months or the next year, but for really for a lifetime of, um, development. Um, so here to my question, um, that means you really need to find people who are, um, have an innovator mindset and want to participate in these programs. Right. Because, um, at first, you might find a lot of resistance. How did you uh, and the people that developed the, the programs that you work for deal with that? How was the reception of your programs at first?
1: Um, so I've got to be honest. I think some of the challenges here are when you develop an online program, you're looking at um, programs that, that you want to produce at scale. You want maximum number of people to, to derive benefit out of that program which means it needs to be self-paced. It means it needs to be digital. Um, The moment you talk about classroom training, that's where a lot of the challenges arise because you can only accommodate a certain number of people in a classroom at a given point of time. You cannot fill a room full of 100, 200 people and expect one or two facilitators to actually facilitate a discussion. Because that, to me, uh, when, whenever I've facilitated sessions on SEL, it's always been a discussion. I don't call myself a trainer. I call myself a facilitator because the idea is for you to arrive at your own insights based on some information that I'll be sharing with you, right? Which is which is what SEL is all about. You need to arrive at your own insights. You need to see how these points connect to your life and how you can implement that, right? Uh, but if you look at it, so, for example, at MGIP we developed this program on SEL in collaboration with Life University. Um, Life University has been conducting this training for the last four or five years, from what I understand, but they were always conducting it as a facilitator-led session, either virtually or in the classroom. Now, they partnered with UNESCO MGIEP. We want as many youth as possible across the globe. So when we say youth, we are talking about anyone who's 18 years and above to be able to access this program. Um, and. UNESCO MGIP is offering the program free of cost. So there's no cost involved in, in signing up for the program or to access it online. But even so, um, before I left the organization, we had more than 2,000 learners on the platform. But how many of them had actually completed the program? I would say it was um, around 150 or 200 learners only. Now, what? so um, I tried getting feedback from learners on on what exactly wasn't working out for them. Uh, were they finding the content too difficult? Were they not liking the way it was being presented? And the biggest feedback that I got is it's social and emotional learning. I need this to happen in a group. I have questions. I have so many questions. I want to be able to connect to a facilitator to, to get my questions addressed. Um, you know, so these were the only and, and technology is overwhelming. We tend to assume that just because we we all use our laptops or our computers and we use our mobile phones, we know how to use the internet, we know how to post um, you know, messages or chat with somebody. We think it's easy, but it is overwhelming. Um, every time there's a new platform, there are features that we don't know how to use and then we are consuming new content that we wanna use as well. So people really need that level of intrinsic motivation to continue with the program. A lot of the time people just feel, oh, this is too hard, let me just give up. This is not that important anyway right so this has been a challenge to see how learners could convert and what i one of the experiments that i did while i was at the organization was to come up with a concept of masterclass so what we would do in a masterclass is every month we would organize we would pick one of the skills from the 10 skills under cit and we would organize a masterclass on zoom and we would tell the learners you can join this masterclass we will walk you through the techniques that we are describing in these skills. Let's do it together as a group. And at the end of it, if you have any questions, me and some of the other facilitators are there, we will answer all your questions. We'll make sure that you're feeling, you know, that, that any doubt that you have gets clarified. And with that, we suddenly started seeing a spike in the conversion rate. A lot more learners started completing the program, getting their certificates, and coming back to us with feedback that this approach of having a blended learning program where you have something that they can consume at their own pace, and then they also have regular in, you know, interactions with facilitator and their peers, that definitely helps a lot, okay? Um, the other thing that I've noticed is when you speak to uh, employees who are working, they don't have the time. They have specific targets and deadlines to meet. And at the end of the day, when they have some free time, they would rather just relax and do something that they enjoy. Sitting in a classroom is not fun for a lot of people. Right. Um, What I've realized there again, is this is this comes from my experience as a trainer and then later on as a facilitator and instructional designer. You need to make it as engaging as possible. If you create a lecture format, people don't have the energy to listen to somebody talk continuously. We want conversations. So if you are, even if you're conducting classroom training, you need it to be a conversation between your participants and you. It cannot be a lecture. So, yeah, I would say these are some of the challenges and this is how I've been trying to handle them. Wow. <laughs> that sounds like that sounds like very uh,
0: overwhelming at times, but also very inspiring. Speaking of inspiring, what motivates you? Because you seem like such a driven person and you have such a, an impressive CV. Uh, what what drives you? What motivates you?
1: Um, I think I'm a learner at heart. So, I don't know if that sounds like a cliche or not, but I love learning about new things. I love exploring and experimenting. Um, And I just, I don't know how to give up. I think I'm very persistent as well. Um, For me, the, so when I think about my childhood, when I was a student, or even when I was in college, um, classes were boring for me. 90% of the classes were boring. The only classes that I enjoyed were were English classes because there were stories there. And when I grew up, I kept thinking, why is it that we hate training so much? Or why is it that we hate education so much? Because it becomes boring. Everybody has targets to meet. So teachers, just they just want to, you know, they have a checklist and they just want to finish that off. Somewhere we lose track of why we are doing all this. It's not about uh, showing a certain percentage, past percentage of students, in a in a classroom or on a piece of paper. It's about how you're actually making a difference uh, in the world that you're living in. So these were some of the things that always used to run in my mind. How exactly do you make it more fun and actually interesting for people around you? And are you actually making an impact in someone's life? You know, there, is there some change that you're bringing about in their life? So somewhere it's a selfish interest because you feel happy. Uh, if you see somebody else, you know, being happy with something you've done for them. Um, and then I think um, all the more in the last couple of years, my motivation has been my daughter. I see her as a student and I'm always, I see her experiencing the exact same thing I did as a child. So it's crazy that in the last 29, 30 years, our education system hasn't changed much. We still seem to be doing the exact same thing in the classroom. And then uh, with COVID in the last one and a half years, we have moved to online platforms. And again, we're doing the same thing. You have so many kids in a classroom. The teacher is again, just sharing 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 they're lecturing all the time and they're not checking whether the kids are actually interested in what they're saying or not right so i I like the idea of coming up with different techniques on how to make it engaging for her and she's sort of my guinea pig I experiment with her and then I try that out in in the programs that I design as well and it seems to be working so what I realized is it doesn't matter what age you are if you are a learner right of any age group the basic thing that you want is you want it to be of interest to you. You want it to benefit you in some way and um, and you want to have fun, basically. So I think my inspiration is, is all this, trying to come up with something that benefits other people, but at the same time is fun for me to develop as well. Uh, I think I'm a creative person. So I like coming up with innovative ways to do something. And I get to do all that with, with this profile that I manage right now.
0: I like your very human-centric approach. You, you seem to put the learner in the center of your designs what would you say were the top things that were missing for you in school?
1: I think it was, um, there was an overload of information all the times. And there was, I could never understand how this connects to my real life. That was missing. I was just being expected to do something. So I did it because I didn't want to fail in class. I I hate failing. Um, You know, when I was a child, I was made to believe that it is wrong to fail. And if you're failed once, if you make a mistake once, then it's going to impact your entire future. So that was that was a very scary place to be in because you were afraid to make mistakes. Um, and uh, I, I think that's that's some of the things you were afraid to talk to your teachers if you had any doubts, because you I, I was always scared of my teachers because most of my teachers, not all teachers, but I was scared of most of my teachers because I didn't know, where, you know if they would scold me for asking them something. Um, I didn't understand how it connects to my life. I didn't find it fun. But I did it anyway because I was expected to do it. And I think that's a very wrong approach to take. Um, I I remember this when I had come for my internship um, to uh, I was in Nice for three months. I was doing my internship with, you know, there was a collaboration project between Inria and Kodazur. So... um, as part of this, while I was there for my internship, I traveled to Fribourg, where there was a conference happening at one of the universities there. And uh, the, one of the departments there, I think it was the game-based learning department, they had created an escape game, right? Um, and what happened was, so they had just developed it. They were using a bunch of boxes where, with um, keypad locks. And you would have to solve the challenge, like each challenge, each puzzle to find out what the code is, to unlock that box. And then you get the, the, you know, the puzzle for the next uh, step, the next level. And it was so crazy that uh, this friend of mine and me, we were going to each place. We were trying to solve the challenge. I would find the number. We would try the lock. I would try the lock and I would give up saying, no, I think I did it wrong. And I'd just give up. And then the person who was the facilitator, he would come back and he would look at it and he this happened thrice in a matter of one hour. He said, you got the answer right. Why didn't you try a little further? The, the number that you got was right. You just had to make sure that you were doing it properly on the log. Why did you give up so easily? And this to me was an eye opener. I kept thinking that whole evening, why was it so easy for me to give up? Because I'm afraid of failure. I'm afraid of being ridiculed for my failure. And I'm, I'm, it's so deep rooted in me that I'm even when I'm right, I believe that I'm wrong. So, the way our minds get conditioned based on how we are, you know, the the experience that we have in school, where we are punished for small little mistakes, it impacts our personality even when we are 32, 35 years old. It doesn't go. And again, that's where social and emotional learning comes into play because you need to unlearn and unpack a lot of experiences you would have had as a child to dive deep into yourself. You don't, uh, well, sometimes you need the help of a therapist as well, but sometimes you can do that just by. So with this program that we developed at MGIP, we have these uh, self-reflective questions for each skill. When you write your answers there and you read it back to yourself, you find out a lot more about your personality than you ever did before. So uh, I think social emotional learning to me was important there as well to unpack a lot of the learning that I had in school and to sort of recover from that as a grown up now to be able to move forward.
0: We are really conditioned by school. I mean, now you probably also notice with with your little daughter, it's very interesting that children learn by making mistakes and by asking questions and by being curious. You touch things, you smell things, you fail, then do it again. But then somehow, at some point, this stops. This curiosity just stops, and we're afraid to ask questions to not look stupid. And uh, I can totally relate to your intrinsic fear of failing or not being right. And um, I'm, I'm, I also had the same revelation during this program because I think project-based learning really gives you a slap in the face because there's no way you can be right throughout the project. I mean, the whole point of developing a project is to try something and then come back uh, after you get got some feedback from the real world and uh, modify it. So I can definitely relate to what you're saying. What would you say to 19-year-old Divya if you could right now?
1: Um, I would say don't be afraid. You know, just live your life, make mistakes, um, and it's going to be okay. You'll figure it out. You don't have to figure out life. at There's no age to figuring out life. It's a process. Every day you learn something new about yourself. Every day you try something new, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But that's not the end of life and it's okay to be that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's very fair. Um, do you think you can develop the state of becoming a lifelong learner? Or do you think this is something that just kind of comes along with you in life?
1: Hmm, I've actually never thought about that, you know, because for me, it's, uh, I think it it has a lot to do with your experiences. Because I remember when I was in school, I didn't enjoy studies. I didn't. Um, I just wanted to somehow pass my exams, uh, get grades that my parents and my teachers would be proud of, and that would allow me to go to the next class. Um, And uh, I think somewhere my interest in learning started when I was in the 10th grade. So I was 13, 14 years old. And at that time, my parents had moved to Ukraine. So we were in Ukraine for two years um, because my mom was posted there. And I got exposed to a very different kind of school culture um, where uh, the teachers, they, you know, they would engage you in project-based activities. Um, You were, so I was asked to do, uh, you know, um, like come up with presentations on how to do something. I remember I I had no topic in mind and my English teacher said, you just have to present to a whole um, hall full of students and parents and teachers how you would do something. So you just need to describe the task, right? And I said, I have no idea. Can you give me any suggestion? And she said, she said, you come up with anything that is that you find interesting. And at that time, the 13-year-old me, one of the things that I found interesting was how my mother used to drape this Indian attire that we wear, which is called a sari. To me, that seemed like a complicated process at that time, but I wanted to learn. And I said, can I do that? And she said, yeah, that sounds exciting. It will give us an insight into our, your culture as well. So why not bring a sari to school, learn from your mom how you drape a sari, bring it to school and show it to an audience, you know, a hall full of people. And I did that. And to me, that was such a boost of confidence because I wasn't ridiculed. Um, People actually enjoyed that session. Um, And then I went on to become the editor for the school magazine. I used to write a lot of poems and stories and my teachers used to encourage me. I started um, I got into the habit of reading. At that age because in school we were encouraged to pick up a book from the library every week so you pick up a book every monday and then uh, the next monday you have to submit a journal on what you thought about the book again there's no right or wrong answer it just makes your you know brain function it helps you think like an individual and they they made me believe that it was okay to have an opinion about something Right? And nobody would be offended uh, if I had an opinion about something. So I used to enjoy that process thoroughly of picking up a book and deciding for myself whether I like it or not. And if I don't like it, what are my reasons for not liking it? And I remember there was this uh, particular series of books that I thoroughly enjoyed, which was called An Indian in the Cupboard. And I told my teacher that about how much I was loving that book. So she actually found out the email I, no, at that time we didn't have email. She found out the postal address of the author uh, who was based in the US and she helped me write a letter to that author. So I wrote him a letter about how much I enjoyed that book and he actually replied back. Okay, so yeah. So that's what I'm talking about that in school, when you have experiences like that, that shapes your personality so much and having that experience uh, it sort of got me hooked on to learning, to trying new things. And it hasn't ended even now. Even now, I I mean, I joined Code Azur um, four years ago when I was 35 years old, right? Um, usually a lot of people around me, my friends, they ask me, where do you get the energy to study at this age? We're just trying to get by, to manage our families, to manage our jobs, to just live life. And to me, this doesn't seem like hard work. It's just something that I'm so genuinely interested in. So I think it, it has a lot to do with your environment. Um, if, you, if you find the right kind of stuff that spark an interest in you, you automatically become a learner. So it's about experimenting and figuring out what you enjoy and then deciding that you want to learn more about mm, that. That's really great insight. So it's basically, in your opinion, about being exposed
0: to the right things that connect them with you. Uh, you seem to have had a really nice experience uh, at the school in Ukraine. I did not know that they uh, had such an open-minded school system, or was it the case just in uh, your school?
1: This was, uh, I mean, the school was based on American uh, education system. So, um, and the educators from there, they were very experienced educators from the U.S., but they had international experience as well. Um, I think, um it, it also has depends from teacher to teacher. So um, my science teacher, he was very professional, but somehow I could never connect with science as a subject. But my maths teacher, um, I could connect with him. The way he used to explain the concepts, I could connect with him. Uh, but English teacher, she was always my favorite. Um, and her husband, who used to teach us history, because it's to do with stories, I used to enjoy history as well. So it also has a lot to do with the kind of teachers that you find um what subject are they teaching does it relate to you are you able to relate to that subject in any way and then plus the approach that yeah they for take.
0: sure because I grew up in Romania which is a neighboring country for Ukraine and I had a very different experience but as you said it also really depended on the teacher so even though the system was very rigid here and there you had very open-minded and innovative teachers and I hope they do know how much they impact the lives of the children that they teach because I hear so many stories from adults that uh, say that their lives changed because of a teacher or because something that a teacher once said in a positive way or in a negative way, like both ways. In this case, it's really inspiring and nice to listen to the positive stories.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, um, see, I'm, I'm experiencing the same thing with my kid today. Um, until two months ago, she was uh, going to a different school. Um Good school, they, their reputation is quite good. They're known for uh, being academically really successful. Uh, but somehow I was unable to connect with the way they were teaching her. And I could see that she was bored. She was completely bored. She didn't. She hated attending classes. Uh, she just couldn't wait till the classes were over each day. And it was like a, you could see the relief on her face when the classes would get over. It doesn't mean the teachers weren't good. They were really good. It's just that they were not able to connect with the way she, need, she wants to learn or what motivates her. And now I've changed her school two months ago and I see a completely different child. It's the same education system. we still I'm still in India. We haven't changed even a city. I'm just I'm just talking about changing schools. Um, the the new school they have lesser number of students and the approach is completely project based. So the teachers they would assign kids into they would uh, they would put kids into groups and then they would tell them this is the topic I want you to find me a solution work together and at the end of the day when you're done come back and share your learning. This approach is something that she connects with and she enjoys thoroughly. So I'm seeing a kid who gets ready, it's, it's early in the morning for her, her classes start at 8.30 in the morning, but she is ready, she finishes her breakfast, shower, everything, and she's ready for class and she's waiting for the classes to begin. And that attitude shift, it's just because they're able to connect to that learner in her, which somehow with the previous school was not happening.
0: See, and that's a very lucky thing that you know all these things, because otherwise, in maybe other families or in other environments, children would just be labeled as uninterested. The, I mean, the system that I grew up in, it was very much of this mentality of you have a talent towards something or you don't have a talent towards something. So you're good at math or you're bad at math. And I'm a bit similar to you. I don't like failing. So I, I just needed to get the good grades. I didn't like anything, but, you know, I got the good grades. So I was labeled as talented or the good kid whereas other peers of mine were not but you see them doing great now because they figured themselves out and they got in touch with their own person absolutely yeah i think
1: um i mean i, I don't blame our parents or uh, the you know the society that we live in because there's a certain conditioning that has happened and it's been it's been passed on since generations the good thing is with with our generation with my generation i'm seeing a shift I see I have a lot of friends who don't want to bog their kids down with wanting uh, them, expecting them to succeed academically. But instead of that, they they want the kid to be happy. Right. So um, I have these same conversations with my child. I expect her to pass her grades, pass each subject because I want her to move on to the next level. But I'm not obsessed with wanting a grade in every subject. I say you pick your interest. You tell me what you're interested in. If it is art, so be it. Enjoy it. If it is English, so be it. Enjoy it. For me, it's more important that she enjoys. And I think this is something that I had to accept for myself a long time ago. Um, It's never a learner who is successful or who's a failure. It's always the way they're taught that is not working out for them. So if a learner is not able to succeed in a particular subject or however you want to gauge them, you need to change the approach with which you are trying to teach them or to facilitate that learning for them. You try a different approach that would work. So I think one of the experiments I've done uh, with her, which seems to work really well, is when I teach her something in science, right? There is a certain process that she needs to learn about. If I just expect her to read from the textbook and understand the process, it might not register uh, in her mind all the time. But since she enjoys art a lot, I told her, how about this? You read the process. Why don't you draw pictures to understand the process? And then you explain it back to me. Now that is something she was able to connect with instantly because the artist in her enjoys that process, so she would go through it, she would understand, and she would draw it in her own way and at the end of it, she would be like, "So this is what this picture means, and then from there this is what happens and this is what happens and then she would remember it right so you, we need to come up with innovative methods that click with our learners that they can connect to it's you know and we cannot label kids or anybody for that matter as a success or a failure it's all about the approach that you're taking towards them. Some things work and some things but I, don't. But I think for that,
0: <laughs> as a parent or a teacher, a facilitator, you have to be in a certain state of mind to have that innovative and flexible approach. So um, d- did you have SEL during your school or your studies?
1: No, <laughs> no way. I, I come from that same school of thought where I was made to believe that these are all values that you're taught. Um I was always uh, an empathic person. I've always been extremely empathic to the point that if I see somebody in distress, my system just shuts down. I wouldn't know what to do about it. Um, I remember some of the incidents that have happened in the world where um, there would be a lot of deaths or some there would be some kind of tragedy. I would shut down and I'd be I'd feel so low for days at an end. I wouldn't be able to focus on anything because it was just it would depress me so much, right? Um, and I didn't know. I I knew that it's depressing me, but I didn't understand how to handle it. I didn't know. I I didn't know who I could reach out to, to handle it. Um, And then when I joined this, um, you know, when I was a behavioral trainer, there again, there were very specific skills that I would train people on. Uh, It's about it was always to do with how do you perform better in your in your job? It was never about developing yourself as a person. And I think when I joined MGIP, that's the shift that that happened because I realized that whether it's in a school or in your family or in your job, if you develop yourself as a person, other skills will automatically fit into the picture, right? And if you look at the format that CIT uses, it's exactly the same thing. So when you have 10 skills, the first four skills are all about understanding yourself better. Okay, Um, understanding why your body and mind respond the way they do to certain triggers, understanding what role trauma has to play in the way you think about something or you respond to a particular situation uh, and learning techniques to keep that under control, to keep yourself in a resilient zone. From there, moving on to understanding your emotions better. Um, Why exactly do your emotions come up the way they do, certain strong emotions? Uh, What are the things that trigger it? And again, how do you control that? And then moving on to the skill of self-compassion, how do you practice kindness towards yourself? You need to be able to do that before you can practice that towards others. So once you have understood these initial four skills, you have um, at least uh, tried certain techniques to practice these four skills, then you move towards the next four where you connect better with other people How do you understand other people better and how, why they respond the way they do? And then the last word, uh, two skills are about how do you connect better with your community? Okay. So uh, I think what helped me there with that job was in the first two months, I had to undergo this training program from CIT as a learner. So I went through the program as a learner. I think I had uh, moments where um, I was completely overwhelmed. So the initial four skills, they were easy for me. I was able to understand myself better. And, you know, there were certain things that I could connect easily to. But I remember that in the next four set of skills, skill six is on forgiveness and gratitude. And um, that was the most complicated skill for me to, to practice. Because how do you learn to forgive somebody who has harmed you? And especially if that person is continuing to harm you today or they have no intention of apologizing to you, you don't get closure. So how exactly do you practice forgiveness towards people like that? And how do you ex- how do you practice gratitude, feeling gratitude towards people who may have harmed you? Or when if you're in a bad state of mind, you're going through a lot of challenging situations around you. At that moment, it's very difficult to practice gratitude. So how do you do that? It It was so challenging for me. I remember feeling really down. And I remember thinking this program is not practical. Um, the skills and the techniques they're talking about, you you can't practice that in your life. How do you forgive someone like that? It's not easy. I can't do it. Um, but I think it, it always gets personal, doesn't it? I think we don't even realize how personal sometimes things get. Um, I might be driving down the road and a driver might just overtake me abruptly. Um, you know, and at that moment, Sometimes our brain, it automatically says, oh, that person did that on purpose. You know, Uh, we get so conditioned by our past experiences. For me, coming from a a country like India, where you're always targeted for being a woman, you know, um, if you if you're successful, then they say, oh, you're successful because, you know, people are sympathizing with you and and making it easy for you because you're a woman or we men have it harder. I've had people say that to me. Right. And if it's difficult for you, oh, that's because you're not working hard enough. You're a woman. So it's it, there's so much of, um, you know, dialogue that happens around being a woman that it makes it so difficult for you. So the moment you're driving down the road, if a man overtakes you, my first response is, oh, he did that on purpose because he saw a woman behind the wheels. He might not even have thought about that. He might be going about his own day. He might be having his own experiences, which I have no clue about. But I'm so it's so easy for me to jump to conclusions because I'm always taking it personally. Right. Um, I think we do the same thing in our office. We do the same thing in our, uh, you know, in, in our educational settings, we always do take it personally, whether we realize it or not. So um, going through CIT as a learner first, I think it helped me because I needed to understand as a learner, what are the challenges that somebody faces when they have to go through an SEL program like this? And how would, me, if I was a facilitator, um, giving advice to me, the learner, what are the ways I could help overcome those challenges? So that helped me quite a lot. And I, I should say this that I'm still continuing to learn. Um, there are there's a lot of research that has gone behind this, the development of this program on CIT. So I'm going through those books as and when I get the time. Um, right now, I'm reading this book, which uh, which is called The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. And that book is a revelation to me. I cannot get enough of it. Um, I hadn't been reading for the past five, six months, and then I suddenly started reading this book and now I can't keep it down. So uh, the writer is a psychologist and he's sharing his experiences in dealing with people who suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder and who have suffered various kinds of trauma. And through those examples, he helps us understand how our body and mind respond to different situations. And the tragic thing in this case is many a times we go through a lot of trauma in our childhood. We don't even put them down as we don't mark them as trauma because we we are made to believe that it's just part of life's experience. But the point is, even if somebody else doesn't interpret it as trauma, for you, it might have been traumatic because you're a different person. So now to be able to connect to those experiences and understand how they're impacting my decisions and attitudes and responses today. That to me was very insightful. So I'm still learning today. Going through
0: such an enlightening discovery. Do you sometimes feel like you have the responsibility to share it with other people?
1: Of course. Yeah, I I think, I mean, I'm not really into writing posts on, you know, I, I used to have a blog before, but I don't have time to manage that blog anymore. But I like I'm having a conversation with you right now. And I'm talking to you about this book because ideally I, I'm recommending this book to you because I think it's very important for people to read books like this. Um, I, until a couple of years ago, I was the kind of person who would never pick nonfiction. The only books I would pick were fiction. I, I love stories and I thought nonfiction is not my kind of, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's not my genre. I can't read books like that. But today's day, there's been an attitude shift. If it helps me understand a bit more about myself, I definitely want to read those books. So I make it a point whenever I'm having conversations with my friends or anybody, if there is something good that I've read somewhere, I want to make it a point to share that with people because you never know when that one sentence from you might make a difference to someone's life. Right?
0: I will definitely link it in the description so everybody can see their recommendation right away. I love it when people give me book recommendations. I don't know, are you on Goodreads? Yes, I am, but not very active. <laughs> That's really my favorite social media app, because I think the people that follow me on Goodreads know way more about me than the people that would follow me on LinkedIn or whatever, because the book that you're currently reading really says a lot about your mental state, your current mental state. So if people know what I'm reading right now, they probably know what I'm going through (laughs) because I'm the same as you. Until a couple of years ago, I didn't really read nonfiction, but um, I was surprised to see that there's more storytelling in nonfiction than I thought it would be.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So I have to tell you this, um, until a few years ago, I never used to, um, I, th- I, I thought I don't have a knack on how to handle finances, right, to manage investments. Uh, for me, investment would just mean I save my money, I find ways to save my money in easy ways, you know, I put it as a fixed deposit or something. Um, And when it comes to mutual funds and things like that, I thought, oh, I don't have what it takes to understand that. It's too complicated. It's too risky. I don't want to lose my money. And then one friend of mine, he recommended this book called The Psychology of Money. And I said, first of all, you're asking me to read nonfiction. And then it's about money. I'm not going to be able to get through to get through that book. But he said, you have to read it. And the fact is, there were so many stories in there. And I could instantly connect with each of those people, their experiences that was being described in the book. And I said, well, yeah, that, I do that too. And that's exactly how I think. Huh, okay, so this is the way I can change my mindset. And it's helped me so much that now I've started investing, right? So I think there are you. what you said is absolutely right about there being stories. In fact, those stories are better because you can connect to them. You know that these are real people that they're talking about.
0: Have you read The Richest Men in Babylon? No, I haven't. That's a really good book recommendation. It's actually very much storytelling because it tells the story of, you know, the richest men in Babylon. It's very interesting because the teachings there, even though they're very simple, they're still very relevant to how we manage finances nowadays. Oh. Um, and it just goes to show that a lot of the principles that we have today have been there since really a very, very long time. So that's really also a book recommendation that I have for you since you said you started um, investing and being more interested in finances. Thank you. I've I've
1: just made a note of it because I think that's the next book that I want to pick up now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's perfect. This is a perfect transition to the last question that I wanted to ask you. If you were to save one book or idea or concept from being burnt or completely forgotten by humanity, which would it have to be?
1: Um, There's no book per se. I think uh, the concept um, that I would want people to remember at any point of time um, is, um, um, I'm thinking, I I think there there are two things that come to mind. One is just let children be children, you know, because we put so many expectations on kids. We expect them to act like grown-ups, but if they act like grown-ups, we don't like that either. Then we expect them to act like children, and I think that's extremely unfair to them. They're, you know, they're here to explore and understand this world in their own terms. So just let children be children. So one would be that, and I think the second one, like what I said, um, it's okay to make mistakes. Uh, you know, the decision that you take today it impacts your current circumstances it never impacts your life forever you can always change anything that you want about your life as long as you 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 put your mind to it so i guess these two things yeah
0: this is a great answer thank you very much and this was really a lovely talk i had an amazing time talking to you and thank you for sharing all of these insights they will for sure be very valuable to our audience and were also valuable for me. <laughs> so um, thank you so much for being here once again and um, I
1: wish you a lovely weekend. Thank you, Diana. I, it was really uh, exciting to be a part of this, this uh, initiative that you've taken and I think uh, what happens with people like me is when I'm discussing something with someone it again brings a lot more insights Uh, because i might not be thinking these questions but when you ask me it makes me think about something new and understand a little bit more about myself as well so thank you for this opportunity i really appreciate it thank you very much and keep in touch
0: and thank you for listening if you enjoyed our talk and are yourself a lifelong learner and would like to find out more about innovative learning methods, then make sure to follow us on Spotify, on Instagram at 451pod, and on Facebook or LinkedIn at 451podcast.